where did you um, learn about this book? And is it the first time you heard of it? Uh, it was the first time I've heard of it. And I learned about it from a good friend. Both of I were, were students of history and taught history. And um, he thought it'd be interesting. And um, especially uh, with my Scott ancestry. So we're talking about the book Born Fighting. Right. Well, the author um, really opens up about his family and, you know, how they all served um, in the United States service, Army, or I'm pretty sure it's all Army, but but they served. And he went to West Point. And so um, they really have a history of family service. And he thought it was important to tell the story of his Scottish ancestry. Yeah, I mean, more than that, I think what he does that's really interesting. And um, wasn't he secretary of the Navy or something at one point? Yes. Yeah. Um, he, he takes an interesting approach to what is, it's not just an American, uh, or it's not an American issue, or it's not just about American history, but he takes the American side of something that's part of world history. And I think that's, what's really cool. So he's looking at, well, why are Americans, or especially a certain group of Americans who have a long history in this country, informing the country in um, a lot of its major political movements, no matter what the party is, right? Why does their rugged individualism um, help define the country and where does it come from? Um, So I think where, you know, where that's concerned, it's an interesting take to figure out who are these Scots-Irish or Scotch-Irish people. In the U.S., we say Scotch-Irish, right? Right, right. Um, But the the big refrain these days is, okay, well, um, you know, it's better to say Scots-Irish because Scotch refers to a drink and Scots are people. I think that's, I think that's um, um, BS. Uh, what do we call it? Bovine excrement. Uh, it, it's like for, for nerds like me, um, it's just a matter of phonology and that's palatalization, right? Where the TS sound, um, you know, easily morphs to a CH sound, ch and ch, right? It's, it's yeah. natural for the human mouth. And so there's a reason why Americans um, say Scotch Irish, it reflects our accent and, you know, the, the drink, you know, is reflective of the people, right? So it's just right. adjectival. Yeah, well, even when you talk about it, you know, quite often we refer to the people of Scotland as being Scottish people. Yeah. So it's kind of like how you use the word or the term or the name. Yeah. Um, but, but what I liked about this book is how he went into the character of people today and could relate it to ancestors and other Scots from... 500 years ago. Yeah. It's their will, their determination, their ruggedness. Um, You know, one part of the book, when he talks about, you know, who really would like to live in Scotland? It's beautiful, but it's cold. Um, It's hard to make a living, like, for farming. Um, There's nothing easy about Scotland. And so you could kind of see, reading the book, um, the determination of people would have. And so the... And that's the root of this is Scotland. Yeah. And, you know, in trying to answer the question, who are the Scotch Irish Americans, you know, and what has made them unique? He doesn't just, um, you know, look at different waves of immigration. 
I mean, he goes back to the beginning of recorded history where the Romans are dealing with a problem on their frontier in the, you know, the, um, the campaigns in Britannia, right? Yep. And so how do they, who, who's bothering them? Who's bothering the Romans as they're colonizing this island? Oh, yeah, it's, it's the Scots. They were relentless. They just wouldn't leave the Romans at peace. And uh, not, I mean, not that an invading army should be at peace. And my, but... my Italian dad saying, <laughs> oh, these, these Scots, these Scotsmen, uh, Picts maybe, um, just wouldn't leave the poor Romans who had to move there out of necessity and, and not conquer yeah. it, you know, not conquer it from the Bretons, <laughs> you know, but uh, they well, just wouldn't leave the poor Romans alone. Well, this is another story because the Romans, their big nemesis were the Druids. And I mean, they were brutal to any captured Roman soldiers. So, but the Romans kept moving north until they got to near Scotland and it just, they couldn't go any further or they, they decided not to go any further. But let's back up a minute, sure. um, Mike, because when we talk about the Scottish people, they're so closely linked to the Irish people. Yeah. And that if, if we looked across the, the ocean there, the sea, um, it's only like 20 some miles. And so there is a real connection between Scots and Irish. Yeah, I mean, you can see it, right? Like it's, yeah. um, you know, like being in Hawaii where you see the different islands from afar, you know, and the, the clearer yeah. the day, the further you can see. And yeah. um, the, certain parts of Scotland you can see across, yeah. um, you know, to, to Northern Ireland, at least, to Ulster. Um, so what did the Romans do then? You know, and where did they stop? Well, why did they stop where yeah. they did? Well, why I brought that up, first of all, is because the Romans didn't go into Ireland. Yeah, okay, okay. right. And so they, they stopped at a point where the return was not worth the investment they were putting in by continuing to go further north. Mm. Um, they felt that they could not get enough goods, money, gold, whatever they wanted. They couldn't get it by going further north. And they wanted to stop the Scots from raiding in the south. So, and that's where, where Emperor Hadrian, you know, said, let's build like a 79-mile wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, how effective was that? I mean, you've been there, right? Well, the wall was more to regulate trade, although it did keep, you know, roving bands of Scots from, you know, from going into uh, England. But it, it was a, a, a very interesting time in, in England and Scotland. Yeah. I mean, with the Romans there. Um, it, the Romans had a tough time in England. And so whatever, whoever made the decision, whether it's Hadrian, the emperor, or his generals, you know, they're trying to just wall off the Scots and not have to deal with them. Yeah, it's, it's you know, maybe a subject for another conversation, but it, it's interesting to see where the Romans stop and where they continue, right? And sometimes when people see empire um, and conquest, you know, they may think it's about land. Um, maybe it's a you know, I don't know, maybe it's about glory or, you know, amassing whatever geography, but really it's, it's in the case of the Romans, it's very practical. Yep. All, what Romans wanted was like any, any country with an army, they want a return on their investment. If they're putting an army somewhere, they want something in return. And so with Hadrian's wall, it, it kind of let, kind of closed the border. But let's face it, 
later on, and I don't have the years in front of me, but another emperor ex- placed the wall further out, the Antonine Wall, and um, which really did not become very effective um, after they put it in. So I think they, they went back and, and decided to uh, really um, manage the border at Hadrian's Wall. So it's interesting what the Romans kept trying to do. Yeah, and and they seem to have, you know, if my reading's right, and I, I believe Webb mentions this in, in the book, um, you know, pushed a lot of the people, the the Bretons or, you know, whomever was living um, in that part of Britannia at the time, um, back past the wall, right? Yeah. And so you have this collection of whomever tribes, but these tribes were born fighting, right? And um, that's a 2000 year, you know, instance of something that um, we didn't quite know before the Romans. We just don't have it written down. We may have lore that talks about it, but um, at least in the book, he he traces it to there. Well, you know, you brought up born fighting. Yeah. So they were born fighting before the Romans, um, clans would fight each other and there would be feuds. And he related it to like in, um, I think in, in Kentucky, Tennessee, where there were people feuding and a feud was a generational feud. And it goes back to pre-Roman times. Right. Uh, and, you know, what's um, interesting beyond that is he, he takes it to the next or the next series of issues that these people, and really it's the lowlands we're talking about, right? It's not um, Highlanders, it's Lowlanders, the Lowlander Scots and the people who are on the border, uh, you know, between the, what we would, you know, end up calling England, Northumbria at the time, or what becomes Northumberland. And um, through the successive waves of invasion, you know, whether it's Danes in the North, um, and then after the Norman conquest and, you know, the eventual um, establishment of, you know, the English monarchy, you have, uh, who it's uh, Edward the first, right? The, the long shanks, so. right? And this is what the movie Braveheart's based on. He wants to, yeah. it, he wants to push, you know, his forces and effectively conquer or administer at least the entire yeah. island. Um, and so or the entire, the entire island of Great Britannia. And so we have William Wallace, this character, who's a lowland Scot, right? And I think one thing that's lost on a lot of us, you know, most people before that movie was made, uh, Braveheart was made, um, didn't know a whole lot about William Wallace, at least in the United States. And um, once we learned about him, you know, it was cool um, to learn, you know, something about medieval Scotland, right? And well, beyond that, one thing that was lost for us is the distinction maybe between the Lowlanders and the Highlanders. And um, we have movie, we have movies like Highlander. There's a whole series <laughs> called Highlander, <laughs> but um, you know, the Lowlanders are the people who are, they're really put in a tough spot. Again, they're borderers. They're people who. Exactly. They're caught in between. Yeah. And yeah. what do you do? You know, if, if you're on the border, you're, you know, um, you're basically trapped. You know, or you're the first line, you're the first wave that gets hit. Um, and so there's an, a nice um, turn in the text about, you know, Braveheart, William Wallace, and then Robert the Bruce and Bonnock Byrne and um, 
all of these like historical recaps, you're reading a book and, and you go through these chapters. Each chapter could be its own book, right? It, it could be its own topic mm-hmm. of research. You could have a whole thing on, um, you know, Roman campaigns, you know, in the North. Right. You could yes. have yeah. a book on Wallace. You can have a book on Scottish royalty or emergent Scottish royalty. And, um, you know, here it's all working to construct a narrative, right, of who are these people and what is forming them. Um, and before you mentioned the the tribal conflict of the Celts, right? Uh, the clans mm-hmm. fought each other. Well, you know, the word that's, I think, I don't know if it's a Pictish or a Gaelic word, but clan, you know, is a word for tribe. Now, in, okay. uh, in anthropology yeah. or, you know, in academia, you'll use them to mean different things, maybe diff- one's bigger than the other. Um, but if I understand that correctly, it's just, you know, we inherit it from them because they're talking about how, Scottish society is um, organized, you know, and whether it's um, indigenous Scottish, like Pictish, uh, or if it's Gaelic, Scots Gael, right, where it's actually Irish folks who moved across the channel, settled in Scotland, helped define, you know, what became the Scotty um, tribes, you know, that described them, their family kin based folk. Oh, yeah. And and I think that was one of the reasons why um, uh, the English king wanted to send them there, because England didn't have the resources to keep fighting the Irish and figured the Scots would either live with them or fight them. And Knox is what you want to say. John Knox, um, Scottish preacher who, you know, um, confessed those principles, brought Calvinism to Scotland and formed the Scottish the Scottish Kirk. Right. (laughs) Just it's a word for church. That's all yep. it is. It's yes. not uh, a special, you know, um, Kirche in German, right? It's the same word. Um, so what's interesting that our author points out is that the, the way in which Scottish Protestantism develops is really reflective of the way they operate as clans. Uh, I don't know why my video keeps freezing today. Um, but the clan structure and sort of the the lack of a top-down ecclesia, you know, uh, that really was at the heart of the church since the first century. I mean, it, it predates um, a, lo- a lot of Christianity in the West. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's reflected in the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. So it's a Syrian structure based on Roman structure. Um, but that doesn't last in a, uh, in a Protestant, and especially new Protestantism, right? Like the emergent Protestantism of the 1500s um, is, ref- is rejecting the, the problematic way in which the church in Western Europe, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, right? Today, mm-hmm. if you say Roman Catholic Church, you're referring to a denomination. Um, but in Western Europe at the time, it's not like there were Orthodox and Roman Catholics side by side. I mean, maybe in a couple places, Romania, you know, that may work. Um, but, you know, the further west you get, the church basically refers to the Roman Catholic Church in, in Western Europe. So you don't have competing denominations. You only have that structure. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of political problems that happen in Europe at that time. So the yeah. first Protestants um, were quite zealous to rediscover uh, a Christ 
in the midst of that politically motivated um, way in which the, the church presented itself and operated in and among you know, the, the royal classes of Europe. So mm-hmm. all that to say, there's this interesting synergy that happens in, in Scotland where uh, Scottish Presbyterianism grows and it reflects the Celtic clan structure, you know, that um, predates, you know, even the Roman presence, um, you know, in the, in the Isles. And so now getting to um, the other side where the Gaelic speaking Scots and English speaking, or they probably speak Scots, which is a dialect of English. It's like a, uh, someone with a thick Scottish accent using a bunch of antiquated English words as well as antiquated, you know, or Gaelic words uh, mixed. Okay. Uh, it sounds pretty cool. You can you can almost understand it. Um, anyway, moving across to Ireland to settle in the Ulster, and now, you know, you can jump in on that part. Well, now when when by going there, it, it really the English tried to solve a couple problems. One is to control the Irish more and to try to put something up against the Catholic Church because the Irish were so Catholic, the island was. Right. And so now with Protestants in Northern Ireland, Ireland, the conflict is not just between the Irish and English, it's between the Irish and the Scottish. And um, again, it, it, it everybody was set in their ways. I mean, they, mm. no one rolled over for the other. They fought each other rather than give in to the other. And so it was not a peaceful transition, especially since the English took a lot of land away from the Irish to give to the Scots. I started to say a while ago, what I think is interesting is at least one branch of our family, they spent a couple of generations in Ireland, you know, uh, like they went to, it could have been a, or, or when some of the first groups went, because where we lived in Scotland was very close to the jump off point for people who went to Ireland. It was like 40 miles away from where you signed up to go and get land. And, and so um, I think it's pretty interesting. And, and especially if anyone is interested, just to look how people migrated there and what the reward was. The reward was land. Yeah. And you didn't go alone usually because you need your clan to support you. And, and if we wonder why that happens, well, let's, let's go back to Scotland and say, when, when things are handed down in a family, it goes to the firstborn. After that, it's every man for himself. Every son has got to find his own way, which usually the second son would go in the military or the clergy. The third son, probably military. Uh, later sons um, may, may become merchants, but only one son got the land. Yeah. So the others looked for a way out, a way to be successful, because you, it goes back to the nature of the Scottish people. They're determined. And that, you know, they work hard. I mean, you know, when I read about the Scots, just in Scotland, Ireland, they, they worked hard. And that's before they came to America. And it started all over again. Yeah. Because that drive somehow was still in them. And it was an interesting problem that brought them there, like, like you mentioned, in dealing with uh, the Irish who were um, fervently Catholic. Right. And how do you deal with the Catholic problem for the, the English, at least? Um, but the English Protestants weren't the same as the Scottish Protestants. So that, yeah. you know, that created kind of a, a, a separate class. I mean, the, the Scots went there not as 
necessarily fellow Protestants, but um, fellow non-Catholics, even though they both fit within that Protestant paradigm. And, um, you know, it it made for a lot of problematic interactions between um, not just the Irish, but the English themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So anyway, um, eventually the the Scots, I, I don't even know how many people in Ulster um, claim descent from, you know, the Scottish Presbyterians um, or the, you know, the, the Scots who immigrated uh, to Ulster. But, you know, after about a hundred years, they said, forget this, let's go to the new world. Yep. <laughs> There'd be fewer people to bother us. Right. There was, there was number one, there was land, there was opportunity, which they didn't have in Ireland. And even Scotland, I mean, they looked for a place to go where they would have some freedom and the ability to use their skills to build something new. They had to take a sea voyage. And in the 1700s, I read somewhere where in a year's time, they lost about a ship a day. I mean, the equivalent of a ship a day because of storms and problems. But there were many, many ships that came from uh, England um, and Northern Europe, Western Europe um, to the Americas. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's something I think we we don't quite reflect on enough. The what it took to go on that adventure, you know, to land somewhere new. And um, I think people today, it's very hard for even for me. And I study history. It's hard to understand. the cost of, of taking a trip like that into the unknown. Um, you only have the food that you take with you on the ship. When you get there, you, there's no store to buy food. Well, there could be a store, but do you have any money, any cash, any gold? Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much living off the land um, until you get established. I mean, so it's truly a risk. The sea voyage is a risk. Many people didn't survive it. And, uh, but they're willing to do it. And, and not just Scottish people, but, um, Europeans were willing to take that risk because the reward could be great. And where the the Scots, you know, what was unique to them at least is most of them seem to have settled in the mountain areas, right? So rather than the, you know, New England towns mm-hmm. um, or even, you know, the big cities, or at least what, I don't know if they, we would even consider them big cities today, uh, they are now, but <laughs> not back in the 1700s. You know, they ended up in Appalachia, right? They ended up in the mountains. Um, not too different than Scotland, right? Yep. So and they traveled up and down Appalachia. I mean, uh, they they went from like uh, say Pennsylvania down to uh, probably uh, almost to uh, Georgia. They lived in the mountains. They were really mountain people. It's kind of funny because we think of mountain people today, kind of people who live isolated in a backwoods cabin. And that's kind of what they were. Yeah. They wanted their freedom. You know, they wanted land, you know, and they wanted an opportunity and they would fight for it. And and that common refrain, right? And they would fight for it. They, like freedom and fighting seem to go hand in hand. And it, yeah. it's in knowing what it took to create the United States or to create the the American um, of the last few centuries. A lot of it goes back to those people in places like Europe, especially, you know, 
the, here highlighted the Scottish um, issue and thus the Scotch-Irish um, struggle was that these people who had a like close-knit family structures, they had their freedom regularly denied and the reaction was to fight. Whether it's infighting, whether it's fighting the outsider, it's kind of leave me alone. Uh, let me live as I want to live, yeah, yes. live the way you want to live. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's a human principle. A lot of this is very similar in um, Middle Eastern culture, um, especially when it comes to Arab tribes and things like that. There's people who they live off the land. Um, they have their own set of rules, whatever the government is. And, you know, the governments there um, have tried to uh, put them in, you know, homes for, I don't know, last 50 years or more. Maybe since the 50s, um, probably 1950s. Uh, and that's, you know, trying to settle down people who are um, tribal and pastoralists, right? Like they took care of animals and, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, they have their own tribal conflicts. They have their own wars and, you know, they'll fight one another. But if there's some other group infringing upon, you know, their freedom, they band together and fight, right? And so it, yep. it's very yes, similar yes. with the Scotch-Irish culture. Um, well, or the Scots and thus the Scotch-Irish. Um, and I'm going to say Scotch-Irish instead of Scots-Irish because I don't care. Um, but I'm aware. So some people prefer Scots-Irish. It's all good. I made my claim at the beginning of the of the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, same sort of problem, same sort of set of challenges. And that's why you kind of see these, um, you know, the the redneck culture, right? The uh, The mountain, you know, uh, mountain man and redneck, you know, refers to the, um, well, tell us what it refers to. You can probably state it better than me. Well, people who, you know, who spend a lot of time in the sun, they're farming, they're, they're hunters. Oh, okay. Um, they spend a lot of time in the woods. So I understood instead, and I thought you were going to jump on this, um, was that they wore, you know, a red sash to, you know, show their support of, um, you know, the, the king who was, a uh, a Protestant king, right? Okay, and no, thus they were the redneckers, right? Yeah, and yeah. so um, it referred to the sash that they wore around their neck. Uh, but I, you know, and so it wasn't um, someone who talks with a twang, you know, or a draw or, or plays the banjo, which is a, you know, modification of an African instrument anyway, um, which Webb notes in the book, uh, Born Fighting, I guess it's called the Banjar um, originally. But anyway, uh, that culture of living in the mountains, living free, you know, and uh, being very patriotic. Um, you know, these are some of the guys who were most active in the revolution. And so that's right. when Washington called them up. Well, and many of them have come throughout the 1700s and um, they were established. And, and so when uh, the revolution started, you know, they had no love for England, even the newer generations. How does that, you know, how does that work over the, over the years, right? Where you have you know, the, the English battling against the people, and then in order to deal with the people and deal with the people being the Scottish or the, the Lowland Scots, um, use them to deal with another group of people you don't want to deal with. <laughs> and then, you know, like they just keep wanting to uh, somehow not, not uh, incorporate, you know, the, the Scots. Um, 
and finally like they end up on another continent and yeah. it, it all comes back to them right it all comes back on them it does so and, and um and really because the scots were established by 1776 we find a lot of them in the fledgling government you know um making a new standard of what a country should be. And that's when they call upon the people who live in the backwoods, say, we need you, and this is what we're going to do. Um, not everyone supported the revolution, but those who did, you know, had, you know, they believed in it. And, um, I mean, we even had relatives that were captured by the British and died on a British ship, a yeah. prison ship. Um, so it's, you know, just interesting when you look at anyone's family, they didn't have to go through the revolution, but just the different times, what they went through, what they survived. And the Scots really were independent. They were more independent probably than a lot of other people. And they were used to that. And again, I don't know how that happens from generation to generation to keep that character, but they've had it. And it's a determination. Well, and it's... I think Webb mentions it in the in the book too. The um, the idea that the mountain people, right, who came to fight in this, especially in the southern campaigns, the campaigns in the southern colonies, um, were mostly for the revolutionaries. They're mostly for the American Revolution, and the loyalists didn't take up arms when the British arrived. Um, and I think that goes back to what it took to live in those mountains and the type of freedom they valued. So if there's one side to fight for, is it the one that's, you know, championing the idea of freedom or is it the one championing the idea of loyalty? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that seemed to trumpet a lot of the um, other competing interests. And one thing that, you know, is also mentioned and, and seems to make sense here too is that part of the Celtic tradition was absorbing um, the other, whether that other was like a Northumbrian, a Dane, um, an Irish, you know, family, you know, I mean, there's integration and in, in intermarriage at, at different points and, um, you know, wherever the lowlanders uh, were moving. But same goes for, you know, settling in the U.S. And yeah. so you have all sorts of different names, um, you know, in fact, a lot of the Lowland Scots have English names, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. So yeah, uh, Patterson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a, you know, that aspect to, I don't know, maybe why the the loyalists who were in the mountains didn't fight with the rednecks. <laughs> You know, redneck means yeah. something different today, so it's so hard to yeah, not, yeah. say it, you know, but, well, they did produce a, a number of Americans of um, acclaim, you know, the big one being Andrew Jackson, and there's a whole yeah. chapter dedicated to Andrew Jackson, and I think uh, Webb does a good job um, talking about him in ways that I hadn't heard before, because usually when yeah. I read about Andrew Jackson, I read about, you know, a, a negative interpretation of him. Yes. Um, and I can understand why, I mean, the, the, so Andrew Jackson is, um, a controversial figure because he does not like the, um, uppity English derived 
colonial, well, it's not colonial anymore, but um, city culture, you know, that a, a lot of the United States still had, right? So, um, he, yeah, he was more of a backwoods kind of guy. I mean, that's how he thought. And he, because he was, he, he was a populist, right? And he was um, yes. championed by the same backwood people who, you know, I, I mean, it's the beginning, well, maybe beginning is not the right word, but it's the, um, it's an example of how class was working in the U.S. Um, at that time and, you know, what it meant to be maybe a, a, a merchant, you know, or uh, I don't want to say aristocrat, but maybe that's what some of the families were, you know, even if, you know, they had connection to uh, aristocracy overseas, um, they had established themselves well in places like Boston, Philadelphia, and, and what have you, New York, especially, right? Um, these guys, you know, and like Jackson, they're frontiersmen, you know, they're, they grow up fighting. Yeah, that, that's the word I wanted. And I couldn't think of front. He was a frontiersman. And so that's how he looked at things. Um, but interesting, because I reading this book gave me a different picture of him. And um, I read another book recently called Blood Moon, about the Cherokees and about how they were displaced. And Andrew Jackson was present at the time and responsible for this. And part of the anger could be how they were displaced. But by reading these two books, Born Fighting and the chapter on Jackson and reading Blood Moon, um, yeah, I, I, I've looked at it differently now, the, the whole trail of tears mm-hmm. with the uh, five tribes being located, relocated. And it, the more I read about colonization, the more I believe it was inevitable. There were so many people coming to America, now by this time the United States, that it was like a wave sweeping over the country. I don't know if they could have been stopped because every time the government tried to make peace with the Cherokee, more people came in and, and broke that peace. And they just kept pushing the borders further and further. So, I mean, I, I people would probably not agree with this, but in a way, Andrew Jackson may have wanted to prevent these people from being killed and dying by moving them somewhere. How that happened was not good because they did it without a lot of food in very harsh conditions. But it's like there were so many people coming to the United States after the Revolutionary War that they kept pushing the frontier. I, mean, I don't know if any Indian tribe could have stopped that What's, unless they assimilated, which yeah. some did. Well, and, and that seems to be one reason why the, the Scotch-Irish are born fighting, you know, because as frontiersmen, it doesn't matter if it's the British in you know the 17 in the war of independence or in the war of 1812 they're fighting the native americans every day you know it seemed um because they're on the frontier and okay every day is an exaggeration of course uh but these frontiersmen like they're scott they're scotch irish people you know daniel boone right uh jim Bowie, davy crockett you know and they um, enter into places like Kentucky, which is going west. <laughs> now it's, it's in the eastern time zone and everything, but um, that was going west. And Andrew Jackson um, adopted, you know, he uh, adopted a Native American boy, 
right? And people don't know. I don't think he has any natural sons. Is that right? I don't think so. Um, yeah, in, in spite of family lore and how we're related to him, I don't know what that means. Maybe because we're Scotch Irish, uh, you know, on you know, some parts of the family. Um, but it's it's an interesting, you know, chapter because the the chapter's not just about it's not a biography of Andrew Jackson, and that goes with all of the different um, moments in history that are important for these Lowlander Scots who you know keep moving from different place to place, settling in America, and it's about how that sort of mentality was part of Andrew Jackson. And mm -hmm. it defined Andrew Jackson the same way it would William Wallace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that that's the intent of the author is to show that side of Jackson. Again, every chapter is a book or, you know, a series of books a book, at yeah. a library, right. You can have tons yeah. of books about Jackson, um, you know, uh, at the library. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a fascinating, you know, way of looking at um, the problem and then looking at how the Scotch-Irish, you know, participated in the Civil War. Um, you know, what, the, uh, you know, most seeming to um, ally themselves with the Confederacy. But I mean, I think part, a big part of that's geographical. You don't have too many. You got Pennsylvania and West Virginia, but, you know, West Virginia went both ways to Kentucky. Right. right. But even, even the Civil War, the Southern... Scots, I mean, they were looking at it like, wait, you're going to restrict my freedoms yeah, by having a central government? You're going to take these things away from me that I've had living here for a generation, maybe? And and so I, I think they were afraid they were going to lose their freedoms. Mm. So they were fighting for a freedom, a belief that their freedoms would be taken away. And, um, and, and it just plus, that's where their land was. Anyway, I, I thought that whole trajectory was a really interesting way of you know, tying the history of a people and what their life was like um, and how it defined America. He goes on through several, you know, generations and, you know, world events. Uh, but then the, you know, the book starts to transition a little toward the end and I, or the last chapters, it's broken up into like seven parts, I think, and each has, um, three or four chapters uh, to them. But the further we get in American history, the more displaced or mobile people get, you know, people start leaving the mountains. They settle in other regions of the U S um, you know, California is one. Um, I forget where he mentions in the Midwest, uh, but all of these places, you know, Scotch Irish people are, are moving. And then because of their high um, you know, participation in the military, they're mobilized and um, deployed to different bases throughout the U.S., right? They have mm -hmm. different, um, you know, they have different assignments all over. And so all of a sudden, you know, there isn't a, a homeland the way there was in Appalachia. Maybe that's the, yeah. it's still there. And they've yeah, kind of right. defined that culture. They've got country music. They've got bluegrass. They've got, you know, a number of um, feet, you know, the, the accents reflect that lowland Scots through um, the agency of Ulster, you know, Northern Ireland. Um, that, that's there, but now the effect has been dispersed, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, 
anyhow, you're left at the end with this bridge. And I think the, the bridge is an interesting one because he makes it, he takes what's historical, makes it local in the United States, and then makes it genealogical. It starts like the last yeah. couple of chapters about his family. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting how he put it all together. So I, I think in the end, um, I, I enjoyed the book more than I thought I would. Um, I think the book is really relevant for understanding different trends in America. Like today, it's uh, 2022. The book was published in 2004. So it's like you could take some of the book and really just open the pages and think it's talking about, you know, the world we live in now, right now, today. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I think that's a testament to, you know, it's, um, it's applicability and how, you know, it's um, thesis is effective, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I have to talk to some of my uh, colleagues about this as a methodology. It's interesting to look at different people groups and see how people groups over the ages manifest in different circumstances. You know, I, I've done yeah. a little bit of that um, research, you know, in, as it applies to the Middle East, which, you know, that's my, um, my area. So it seems to work, but I don't know how well of a method um, it can be because there's so many variables to it that mm -hmm. those parameters really need to be defined. But for, a, and this is a popular book, right? Like it, he cites a, like the book cites things. So he's getting things from sources, but it's not academic in the way that it's written for peers. It's written for the public. Yeah. Yes. I'd say that. So anyway, I liked it um, more than I thought I would like it. I think it's a cool take on America um, and especially this American subculture, you know, that uh, if you ask Scotch Irish people, like, what do you identify as? They'll probably say American. Right. And um, it's one of the reasons why we don't hear as much about them as maybe other groups of immigrants, you know, who've helped define yeah, the country. Yeah. No, you're probably right there. Yeah. Okay. Well, any, any closing thoughts, any, no, but I agree with you. It, it was a very interesting book to tell, to talk about the character of a people and how that character remained stable for generations, you know, and, and how the de determination remained with people of this ancestry for generations. And I really liked it. Worth reading. Good. Well, maybe we'll talk about genealogy, um, you know, in, in a future discussion since I think a lot of Americans, and I don't know how it is in other parts of the world, but traditional Americans seem to um, be genealogy enthusiasts. Like that's a, a popular way of doing it, but it's also depending on your roots um, or what your own family tradition is. It's part of who and what we are to remember where we came from you know, and um, trace our lineage back. And so these are the types of stories that help illumine one's own family history. And I think if anyone gets the book and reads the book, and then you get to the end where you realize, okay, the author is now talking about his family rather than William Wallace, you know, um, or the Celts, you know, of pre-Roman uh, Britannia. Well, he, he is, he's taught, it's the same thing. And what he, he's, we we're detached on this continent from 
a lot of world history. You know, we can claim it. We can claim to be sons of Rome, you know, and surely <laughs> that was the case. Um, but what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for well, someone who's risked everything to be in another country? And, and we're not, no matter what, mm -hmm. most Americans aren't students of history because we, we look at history as being maybe 350 years uh, from the first settlers in North America, where if we have English or Roman history, we'd go, or Egyptian history, we'd go back thousands of years, you know, and, and so this is scratching the surface, but how I look at it, especially genealogically, whether I can identify a relative during any of these times, I know I had relatives that lived during those times, or I wouldn't be here. And that's what fascinates me is, you know, when when people went to um, uh, to Ulster, and uh, you know when the Romans were in England and going to Scotland, no matter what, we had relatives somewhere around that existed. We just don't maybe don't know who they are. Yeah, they lived during those times. They were brutal times, and the survivors were the strongest. Well, and I think that's what's um, something I liked about the book. You know, you it puts a name um, or it gives an identity to people you don't know about anymore. Yeah. yeah. You just know a legacy or maybe if you're lucky, a tribe name, right? A clan name. Yeah. And um, you can learn about the clans, uh, but you know, that maybe that gives you an ancestor in a way. Yeah. Yeah, don't All right. Know the name. Well, we'll close it there. Um, okay. If you're interested, go ahead and get the book. It's Born Fighting by James Webb. I think you will enjoy it. Uh, and we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.